Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church. We are celebrating the resurrection of our Savior. We do that every week here. It's a good thing. And we're also celebrating our 25th anniversary. This is actually the weekend we kicked off uh, Desert Breeze 25 years ago. It was 1991. It was Easter of 1991. Uh, it was uh, in the Boys and Girls Club. We'd started in my home with about 16 of us in uh, September of 1990, grew to 40, and then launched the church in 91 with about 40 of us. And uh, the rest is history. You'll get a chance to hear more about our story as we uh, continue to celebrate our 25th in the weeks to come. But we're going to talk about this morning uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. That's in the Old Testament. It's right after Proverbs. Don't hesitate. Take a look at that table of contents to find your way there. Recovering Awe is our brand new teaching series. We're going to talk about meaning this morning. You can also grab your sermon notes out and take a look at those. Human beings are hardwired for awe. God created this world full of awe. Created awe was meant to point you to creator awe. Horizontal awe was meant to point you to vertical awe. Every sunset viewed, every favorite food savored, every vacation enjoyed is a gift from God and a pointer to him who is much more beautiful and desirable than anything in creation. If you pursue created awe apart from it leading you to creator awe, it will ultimately leave you awful. Okay, sorry, I had to throw that in there. Uh, it'll leave you empty. And that's the thesis of the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. That's the, the basic summary of it. The writings of King Solomon, the wisest, wealthiest, most powerful, most privileged man who ever walked this earth pursues everything. He pursues sex and money and work and entertainment, and you can add to that list. He pursues created awe and uh, with no restraints and reaches the end of his life bored and burned out in repentance to God, warning to us that life is meaningless apart from God. Take a look at your sermon notes. You can also look up on the big screen this uh, quote from C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist who became a Christian. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. St. Augustine, who was a hedonist, very promiscuous in many ways, who became a Christian, this is what he said in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Now here's the thesis of what I'm going to talk to you about this morning, and that is Christianity gives you a meaning in life that is indestructible. I put it this way on your notes. Christianity gives you a meaning in life that the worst suffering in this world can't take away from you and the greatest success in this world can't give to you. So we're looking at three questions here this morning. The first one is, why is meaning in life important? Second question is this, is there meaning in life apart from God? And then the third one is, what is the indestructible meaning in life Christianity gives? But let's begin, first of all, with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? <clears throat> let's pray. And then we'll take a look at this text and unpack these notes. God, we are delighted to be here today. We thank you for the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said he is. 
and did what he came to do. He is God in the flesh that came to rescue us from our sins and give us a life that most, most people only dream about. Thank you for the 25 years of ministry through Desert Breeze and the many who have played a part in helping unchurched people become fully devoted followers of Christ. We pray this morning through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to know and experience this meaning in life that is indestructible for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Take a look at this uh, Ecclesiastes. I'll, I'm going to kind of read through. I'll, I'll make some brief comments as we work through it. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher. He's actually more of a philosopher and uh, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. The word means emptiness or meaninglessness. He's just saying it's not just meaning, meaningless, it's meaningless of meaninglesses. I mean, it doesn't sound very well. That's why they put the word vanity in there. It's empty of emptiness. All is vanity. All is empty. What does man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He's just saying, hey, nothing changes. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. He's almost kind of given us a little bit of the kind of an idea of how many have ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? That's kind of what he's describing here. You get up, you go to work, you come home, you go to bed, you get up, you go to work, you come home, and maybe you have a weekend here or there, maybe take a vacation, but it's the same old thing over and over again. And even as you look at creation and all that's going on around us and very little changes, verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter, no matter how hard you work, there, there is still, oh my goodness, there's still laundry to do and bills to pay and uh, lawns to mow, and, and you still have to get a haircut every couple of weeks. <laughs> Believe it or not, I still get haircuts. I mean, that's just, uh, you probably didn't think I did, though. But if I didn't, have you ever seen a bowling ball with a hula skirt? <laughs> that's, that's what I would look like without haircuts. But, but, but it almost seems like it's endless. That's what he's saying here. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. That's a key phrase, by the way. You're going to see that a lot throughout this book study. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before. There is no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Now he, he restates who, who, who he is, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Verse 13, he gives us his quest. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. I mean, striving after the wind, chasing the wind, it might be exhilarating, but ultimately you can't catch it. That's what he's saying. There's things that are exhilarating in life, but ultimately, ah, it's over. 
It's a wild goose chase without the goose, is what he's saying. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And then he gives us his qualifications. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So he's almost kind of like saying, hey, wait, wait, wait. If you think you're smarter than me, if you think you have more money than me, if you think you have more privilege than me, you don't. Nobody ever has. And I pursued everything under the sun, everything in creation, and I came up empty. And then he says, and and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I used to wonder about that verse until I got on the fire department. And I know that we have uh, fire department personnel here, first responders, we have police officers here. And believe me, it's much darker than you could ever imagine. You get involved in that... uh, that career, and you begin to say, this place is jacked up. This is a mess. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why the suicide rate is so high and also divorce rate is so high among first responders. As you begin to see the wickedness, just turn on the news, and that's just a dim glimpse of what's going on below the surface on this planet Earth. It's uglier and more difficult than what you might imagine, and that's what he's trying to get at. This is God's word to us. Now, (laughs) I know that you're probably thinking, some of you are thinking, I thought Easter was supposed to be happy and (laughs) hope-filled. I mean, Easter lilies and all, and candy, and what is this about? This is springtime. Where's the happy message? I mean, that's the most depressing chapter in the Bible, And some of you are going to use this this next week. Honey, go mow the lawn. What? No. It's it's meaningless. Why should I do that? You heard the pastor. It's in the Bible. No, you can't use it because we're going to get to the hope and the happiness here in just a minute. But, but I mean, it's it's certainly, it almost sounds like a pretty depressing book. And and yet, in the midst of this, we're going to, you're going to see the gospel. And so let's begin with the first question here. Why is meaning in life important? Verse 3, keep your Bibles open. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The key word there is gain. You can see there on your notes, it's used 10 times in this book. The Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in, is the word profit. What is the permanent value left after you've done everything? That's the idea here. So what he's asking is, what is the end, purpose, or significance of your life? Now, there was a man by the name of Viktor Frankl. He was a Jewish doctor who survived the death camps uh, during World War II, wrote a book called Man's Search for Significance. And he wrote that the death camps were horrible places, suffering was imminent, and death was everywhere. Most of us that have done any kind of research in history, we know that. He lost his father, mother, brother, wife. They all died either in the ovens or the, the camps themselves. And this is what he noticed that people responded to it in one of three ways to these death camps. There was one group of people he, saw, he said that would, uh, got bad. They lost all principles. They did anything to survive. They betrayed and exploited one another. They were informers for the Nazis. That was one group. Another group uh, of people just gave up. They withered. Sometimes they actually literally lay down, curled up in a ball, and died. They became despondent. He said what was amazing was this third group is that some became quite heroic. Some people had courage, made sacrifices, and were really fearless. And this is what Dr. Viktor Frankl said. By the way, he was an existentialist. You need to know that. But what he said 
was what made the difference was a person's meaning in life. Your meaning in life must be able to endure the death camps. If the death camp can take your meaning from you, you're going to be destroyed. Now take a look at your notes. Let me give you a, a few fill in the blanks here. Here's the first one under this idea of why is meaning in life important. Everyone has to live for something. So whether you're a Christian or an atheist, you are living for something. You can't exist unless there is some sort of meaning in life. You're either going to have that meaning by choice or by default. And so here's my question for you. What is your life about? How do you know your life is not a waste? What will you actually accomplish with your life when it's all said and done? See, if you're not asking those questions, you're really not living thoughtfully. You're not living, you're not living as a human being. You're living more like an animal. You're going on instinct. You're just going through the motions. Those are really important questions. Next thought on your notes, fill in the blank here. That something, that meaning must be able to endure suffering and death. That's what Dr. Frankel said. If the death camps can take your meaning from you, then you'll be destroyed. So if your meaning, is, your meaning in life is your status, your money, your beauty, your popularity, if it's anything in creation, is what he's saying, ultimately, that's temporal. That's perishing. Ultimately, it's going to perish. That's the idea here. If it's, if it's anything in creation, then suffering and death will take it from you. And suffering and death are certainly inevitable. That's probably not the, what the folks were thinking in Brussels, Belgium this last week, but now they're thinking about that. Suffering and, and death is, is inevitable for all of us. That's where we're headed. Here's the third point on your notes under this idea of why is meaning in life important. We must think it out. That is, we need to think out our meaning. Whatever our meaning is, we need to think it out to its furthest possible implication. That's what we don't do here in America. We just kind of live from day to day, not thinking much deeper than what we've put our hope and trust and love in, not realizing that what we've put our hope, trust, and love in is maybe it's temporal and it's a matter of time when it's going to be demolished in our life and so will our sense of security and, and, and hope for the future also dashed to the rocks. And so it's important to ask that question. Think it out to its furthest implication. Suppose I came to you and asked you to go to 35th Avenue and Union Hills this Tuesday and stand on the corner from 3 to 5. I mean, how would you respond? Your natural response would be, what? Why? I mean, when you, when you say that, how many, how many would do that without even asking why? Anybody here? My wife wouldn't even do that, okay? She'd say, what do you want me to do that for? You coming up with another one of those crazy ideas that you come up with? No, you'd say, why? You're my friend, but I need to know why. What will it accomplish? What gain will there be to anybody? What purpose is there? See, and that's natural. This preacher, Solomon, this philosopher says, you will ask a question like that about how you spend your Tuesday afternoon because you don't want to waste it. But when you ask a question like that about how you're spending your life, see, oftentimes we don't think beyond our Tuesday afternoons. We think about that and maybe this weekend and maybe what we're going to do for our summer vacation, but we don't think beyond that. And that's what Solomon is wanting us to think. Now, there's three different basic questions. That if you're going to have really meaning in life, there's three questions you need to ask yourself. One has to do with your origin. Where did you come from? The third question would be your destiny. Where are you going? 
And the question in between those two is, why are you here? Those are really important questions. Those are going to make or break you and how you live out your life. And so Ecclesiastes is a book of questions, not necessarily answers. That's why I call him a, a philosopher and not a preacher. preacher. Preachers are to give answers, but he, he, does, he asks more questions in this book. Though there are some answers throughout, and we know from the fuller context of Scripture that there are plenty of answers for us. But his job is to push us to the limits. Solomon's approach is the Socratic dialogue. The preacher or philosopher, professor, we might call him, he wants to push you to the logical conclusion of your position. He wants to lay bare the foundation of your life. Why do you believe what you believe? Where are you going with your life? When it's all said and done, will your life make a difference? And what does that mean to make a difference? What I've found as it relates to Christians, if you neglect the why, the why you believe what you believe, then you're going to drift from the what under the pressure of suffering and or skeptics. I see a lot of people defect from the faith because they maybe not only not know the what, but they don't know the why. And you need to have both. Now, here's the next question on your notes. Is there meaning in life apart from God? So it's really important to have meaning in your life, but is, there, is it possible to have meaning in life apart from God? And he says in verse 2, vanity of vanities, emptiness, emptiness, meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Vanity of all vanities. All is vanity. Verse 3, what does man gain by all of his toil at which he toils? And that's the key phrase, under the sun. It's used 29 times. It's there on your notes. It means apart from God. So if you're going to try to live life without adding God to the equation, he's saying it's a big zero. It's a wild goose chase without the goose. And then the word vanity is used 39 times. It means vapor, breath, meaningless a waste of time that quickly passes. How many, as you get older, you're seeing that time is flying by. Remember when I was in high school, I thought I'd never get out of high school, okay? Did anybody ever have that feeling? I can still remember back in those days, I thought, four years? This is an eternity. And then as soon as I was out, 10 years went by like that. Boom. And then 20. Boom. And now I've lost count, okay? So uh, I don't know how many years I've been out of school. I graduated in... 1993 or something like that. Actually, 74, 74. I graduated in 74. Man, that dude is old. Some of you graduated much earlier than I. And so, I mean, it feels like that. It's like a vapor. It's going by fast. The word that he's using here is like, you know, we very seldom have these cold mornings. Well, we have a few. But where you can actually see your breath just for an instant, boom, and it's gone. That's what he's talking about here. Now, there's three answers to that question that he destroys. And he just annihilates them. One is humanism, because oftentimes people say, well, I'm here to make the world a better place. And he refutes this philosophy. It's the philosophy of humanism in verse 4. He says, a generation comes and a generation goes. And here's what's ironic about that is that each generation thinks that they're going to do a better job. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. They come out and say, oh, that last generation, they're messed up, but we're going to make a difference. We're going to vote somebody in to politics that's going to change the world. What do you think? <laughs> Give it your best shot. I mean, when you're as old as I and you've seen a lot of presidents come through and a lot of politicians, you just go, yeah, right. You're going to do a better job now? And that's what he says. He says, good luck. 
A generation comes, generation goes, pretty much unchanged. Verse 11, he says, there is no remembrance of former things. In other words, he's just saying, you know what, you're going to die and nobody will remember you. And let me prove that here just for a minute. How many remember your great, 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 great grandparents' names? Anybody? Nobody. It wasn't that long ago. You don't remember them? They won't remember you. That's depressing. Exactly. That's the truth. He's wanting to push you out to the limits of what you're living for ultimately. Now, another thing he says here, verse 15, he says, what is crooked can't be made straight. I mean, how many would agree that we live in a broken world? Show of hands? Oh, there's no doubt about it. I talked about that a little bit. Just ride with the police officers. Go on some fire calls. Take a look at what's going on in the streets of Phoenix. It's more messed up than what you think. Yeah, the, the news gives you a little glimpse of that, but it's worse than that. Believe me. Much worse than that. That's what creates, sometimes there's almost that sense of hopelessness with first responders and people that are out there dealing with it day in and day out and day in and day out. So humanism, he kind of demolishes that. Is this world getting to be a better place? Is it getting to be a better place? You think humanism is going to pull us out? No, it hasn't. If it, if it, ha if it would, it, it would have already taken place. By the way, the gospel brings amazing change to cultures when it's preached within a culture. I have a lot of missionary friends that they say, you can't believe the difference it makes in a culture when the gospel is proclaimed within a people group. It changes, it transforms the people, it transforms the culture. But humanism is not going to do it. Here, he also uses hedonism. It's all about pleasure. He says, verse 8, the eye is not satisfied. <clears throat> now, chapter 2, next week, we're, when, when you come back next weekend, we're going to talk about happiness, and we'll look at chapter 2, because he spends a lot of time on this whole idea of hedonism. Now, let me ask you this question. So he says, the eye is never satisfied. Parents, how long did it take for your kids to get tired of their new toys this last Christmas? Am I proving my point? Some of the kids threw the toy away and played with the box that the toy came in. We've all seen that. How about you as an adult? How long did it take until the thrill of the new home, the new car, the new boat wore off and you were looking for a new one or a better one or a different one? I mean, I don't even need to go that big. We can just go with our iPhones. And some of you are Android people. You're just like, the last, this isn't working as good as the next one, so I need to get the next version. And, and, and how many versions of iPhones have we had now? And each, each time they come out with a new one, a better one, and I gotta get that. And the point is... The eye is not satisfied. The eye is not satisfied. Horizontal awe was meant to point us to vertical awe. And then, here's a big one. This is a big word, existentialism. We'll probably unpack that idea a little bit more throughout this series. Basically, existentialism is be courageous and moral in the face of suffering and death. Value is created by one's choice. And he annihilates that in verse 17. He said, I tried wisdom, I tried folly. This too is chasing the wind. In other words, he's saying it doesn't really matter in the long run whether you are courageous or a coward in the face of suffering. If there is no God, eventually we will all be forever gone and forgotten. That's the idea that he's saying. Now, take a look at your notes. That the next point on your notes kind of summarizes what he's saying here. Is there meaning in life apart from God? And here's what the conclusion that he's getting at here. The wisest, wealthiest, most privileged man, most powerful man who ever walked the earth. 
Look at this next point. If our origin is insignificant and our destiny is insignificant, then everything in between is insignificant. Make sense? That's just basic logic. If we came from random chance and unlimited time, evolutionary processes, many people believe, more and more people are believing that here in America today. If that's our origin, and eventually the sun is going to burn out, as many scientists say, eventually it's, it's, all that you see is just going to disintegrate, it's going to be all over. If that's true, if, if our origin is random chance, unlimited time, and our destiny is poof, it's all over, then whatever meaning you put in between those two is really meaningless in the long run. That's, that's the point that he's making. Now, let me read to you. This is from, it's a bit lengthy, but you need to hear this guy's story. It's Leo Tolstoy in his Confessions, 1879. He says this, I was baptized, brought up in the Orthodox Christian faith, but when I abandoned the second course of the university at the age of 18, I no longer believed any of the things I had been taught. My lapse from faith occurred as is usual among people on our level of education. So I lived. But five years ago, something very strange began to happen to me. At first, I experienced moments of perplexity and arrest of life. And though I did not know what to do or how to live, and I, I felt lost and, and became dejected. All this befell me at a time when all around me I had what is considered complete good fortune. I was not yet 50. I had a good wife who loved me and whom I loved, good children, and a large estate which without much effort on my part improved and increased. I was respected more than at any previous time. My name was famous, yet I could not give any rational meaning to any single action or to my whole life. Today or tomorrow, sickness and death will come to those who I love or to me. Nothing will remain but stench and worms. Sooner or later, my affairs, whatever they may be, will be forgotten and I will not exist. So why go on making any effort? How can we fail to see this? That is what is so surprising. One can only live without God while one is intoxicated with life. As soon as one is sober, it's impossible not to see that it's all a mere fraud or a stupid fraud. There is nothing either amusing or witty about it. It is simply cruel and stupid. Now, here's the point that I wanted to get to, and this is what he says. My question, the question that had brought me to the edge of suicide when I was 50 years old, was the simplest question lying in the soul of every human being, from a silly child to the wisest of the elders, the question without which life is impossible. Such was the way I felt about the matter. The question is this. What will come of what I do today and tomorrow? What will come of my entire life? Expressed differently, the question may be, why should I live? Why should I wish for anything or do anything? Or to put it still differently, is there any meaning in my life that will not be destroyed by my inevitably approaching death? Yeah, there is meaning in life. There's amazing meaning in life. Because you are not here by accident. You're here by divine design. And God has given us meaning. 
And our destiny, if we put our faith in him, is quite overwhelming. Take a look at this. What is the indestructible meaning in life Christianity gives? In the first century, the Greek philosophers would get together and say, if we could just find the logos of life and align our lives with it, then things would be fine. And the logos here means logic or meaning. It meant the reason for life. Let's say that you come over to the house. We're going to watch some movies. I'm in the kitchen trying to put together some popcorn. I'm frustrated. You can hear me in the kitchen. So you walk in the kitchen only to find out that's not going to work. You can't pop popcorn in that. Why is that? Because that's an espresso machine, not a popcorn machine. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, I did because I use it every day, but I'm just using this as an illustration. But that's crazy. It's, it wasn't built for making popcorn. That's not the logos. That's not the logic of, of that machine. You are not using it according to its logos, its meaning, its purpose, its design. And when you do, it will reach its potential and prevent breakdown. In this same century, as I talked about these Greek philosophers, there was a guy by the name of John who wrote the book, and it's called The Gospel According to John, and this is what he said. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. Who is he talking about there? Who's the word? Anybody? Jesus. Jesus. And did you know that that word that he's using there in the Greek is logos? Here's what he's saying, is that there is logic, there is meaning, and his name is Jesus. And he came to this world. In fact, he goes on in verse 14, and he said, and the word became flesh. How do we know there is a God? He showed up here. He came to this earth. Not only do we know that there's a God through creation and God's commandments, and, and, but ultimately through Christ. Through Christ, Christ showed up here, and that's what he's saying. And the word became flesh, and the word dwelt is tabernacled. It's the same word that's used when Moses built the tabernacle. And, and it was the meeting place of God. This is quite... Amazing what he's saying here. The word, the logos, the logic, the meaning of life became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, the place where we will meet God among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John was an eyewitness of the resurrected savior and he went to his impending death although they could not kill him the other disciples were all killed for their proclamation of this resurrected lord you remember john they tried to boil him in hot oil couldn't kill him so they exiled him to the island of patmos where he wrote the book of revelation you guys familiar with that this is the same guy this is what he said he's saying the meaning the logos of life is not a principle or a plan it's a person and later on he wrote john 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh my goodness. That's an amazing verse. That verse still to this day never ceases to amaze me. That's an amazing verse. That verse is rich with meaning. Here's your next point on your notes. All human problems are symptoms and our separation from God is the cause. Now, The Bible tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same category. 
and the wages of sin is death, so we're all separated from God. That's what that means. We're dead spiritually. We're separated from God. We're facing an eternity of separation from God, and that's Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. But I love the, the second part of Romans 6.23. He says, for the wages of sin is death. Now get this. Because most people don't know the, the gospel and they think the gospel is just like every other belief system on this planet. It is totally different. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now see, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in our world today. It's, it's outstanding. Every other belief system is about working hard to achieve a right standing with God and the right standing with God is a gift from God to you and I by grace through faith in Christ. You don't have to work to earn God's favor. You don't have to work to earn God's favor. You can't. Not in a million years. We talked about it last weekend. You can't earn it. But you don't have to. Every other belief system is about earning God's favor. The Bible says you can't. And so you can't earn it. You can't earn God's favor. But all you need to do is trust the one who completed that work on our behalf and then in gratitude live for his glory. That's amazing. That's a way to live. That's a great way to live. I was thinking about that this last week. So in justice, God passed the required sentence of death on our sin. But in mercy, he took that punishment himself on the cross. It's amazing love. So the gospel isn't about, it's not good advice of what you must do to be right with God. It is good news about what he has done to make us right with him. And believe me, the more you get to know that, the more that will bring and stir within you an indescribable and indestructible joy that becomes such a deep meaning in your life. And... Here's the next one. The meaning of life is a personal relationship with God through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ. And that's what we're saying. John 17, 3. For this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, once you fill in the blank, look up here, because you've got to get this. And you hear me say this regularly around here. But I still think it kind of bounces off some of us. And so you need to kind of know this, that there is no pleasure on earth that compares to knowing and experiencing God's boundless and irresistible love through Christ Jesus. There's nothing. There's not a marriage. There's not an amount of money. There's no pleasure whatsoever on this earth that comes close to having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Nothing will satisfy you the deepest longing of your heart like him. And uh, no one has ever loved you more than Jesus. And here's the, so if that's true, and so next, here's, the, here's this indestructible life. If you believe these next few truths, you can face suffering and death with a calmness, a contentedness, and a courage unlike, unlike anything else. And here they are. By grace through faith in Christ, my bad things will work out for my good. You can look up these verses on your own as you kind of work through the growing notes this next week. Here's what the Bible tells us over and over again. God is at work in the worst of times doing a thousand things that no one can see but him for our good and his glory. Even when it looks like he's not working, he's working in our lives. The Bible is very clear about that. And we don't trust him because we see his hand in our circumstances. We trust him 
because we see his heart on the cross. No one has ever loved us more. No one will ever love you more. And if he did that for you on the cross, if he took care of your worst problem, of course he's going to take care of all of your lesser problems. That's the point. Here's the next point. My grace through faith in Christ. My bad things won't work out for my good. My good things can never be taken from me. Because I'm a child of God, by grace through faith in Christ, my sins are completely forgiven, past, present, future, never to be held against me. We talked a lot about that last weekend. And nothing can ever separate me from his love. When your happiness is in Christ, now listen to me, when your happiness is in Christ, you can't lose your happiness because you can't lose Christ. Regardless of what kind of hits you take in life, if you have him and your source of happiness is him, oh my goodness, you can't lose him. He will never leave you or forsake you. That's amazing. No matter how great or bad your circumstances are, they can never give to you or take from you the love, joy, and peace that can only be found in Christ. Did you know that? There's a love, joy, peace that, are, that can only be found in Christ. It can be found anyplace else in creation. And that can never be taken from you. We suffer not because of the size of the things that we're facing, but, but also because of the smallness of the God that we're trusting. If you had any idea who it is that you're putting your faith in, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. Here's the last one. <clears throat> The best, the best things are yet to come. So by grace, through faith in Christ, my bad things will work out for my good. My good things will never be taken from me. And my best things are yet to come. Jesus said in eleven twenty-five and 26, Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Shall never die. Jesus' resurrection from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And so for believers, if you've put your faith in him for believers, death is nothing more than just taking an afternoon afternoon nap. How many are gonna take a nap this afternoon? Woo! I am after four services this weekend. <laughs> Believe me. It's like nothing more than taking an afternoon nap, falling asleep, and then waking up in the arms of our Savior where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. Everything sad will come untrue and we will live happily ever after. That's the promise of the resurrection. And if you really believe this, you're not going to face suffering and death with anxiety or anger or depression. You're going to be calm, content, and courageous in the face of that. Now, let me end with this quote, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to commit your life to Christ or recommit your life to Christ. This is C.S. Lewis, once again, atheist who became Christian. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He's talking about like a Caribbean cruise. You want to play in the mud puddle when there's a Caribbean cruise that's offered us? We are far 
too easily pleased. Let's pray. If you are here this morning and you've never made a confession of faith, boy, that would be the most important decision you can make for time and eternity. And you might say, well, how do I do that? You do that by acknowledging your sin that separates you from God. That's A, acknowledge your sin. B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And C, confess him as Savior. Turn your life over to him. You can do that by prayer through faith. Even right now, just do that. Maybe there are those of you that's been a while and you need to renew that commitment. I would encourage you to just say that prayer. God, I acknowledge my sin that separates me from you. I kind of continue to kind of do my own way. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. But Jesus, you died on the cross for all of my sins. I thank you for that. And I, I'm giving you my life. I'm putting my faith in you. And I want to live for you and live for your glory. I pray for those this morning that are making that, that decision, maybe for the first time or renewing that. God, I renew that in my own life. I want to live my life for you each and every day. I pray that the things in creation would continue to point me back to you, my creator who loves me and adores me and gave his life for me. God, thank you for that. Now keep your heads bowed just for a moment. If you mean that, if you really mean that, the next step for you would be to get baptized, to make a public declaration of that. We're going to be doing a baptism service here in about four weeks. And after each one of our services in the, fall, in the next three weeks, we will be giving you a class of about 10 to 15 minutes you can come to and get ready for that. And we would love to celebrate that decision with you. God, thank you so much that by grace through faith in Christ, my bad things will work out for my good. My good things can never be taken from me and my best things are yet to come. Thank you for this indestructible meaning that you have given to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we conclude our time together as we celebrate this amazing grace that we have in him.